0: this is the rational perspective i'm alec hogg in this episode peter hayne on mandela ramaphosa and white south africans Always special to visit with Peter Hayne, the anti-apartheid icon who has had a highly successful half-century career in British politics. Last time I watched him deliver a killer speech in the House of Lords, which smashed any hopes that the Guptas had of slinking away into the shadows. This time he hosted me in the Royal Gallery, a grand room through which Elizabeth II passes en route to her official throne where she delivers the annual Queen's Speech, the official opening of the British Parliament.
1: It is a completely different world, and I would never have anticipated being here until, out of the blue, my then-party leader, Ed Miliband, asked me, and I was a sitting MP who intended in 2014, when he sprung this request on me, uh, to restand as a Labour MP, Uh, In the 2015 election, he asked me to come here. My immediate answer was, I don't believe in the place, I think it should be elected. To which he replied, that's exactly why I want you there, because I need reformers. Too many people will go native when they go there. And if I become Prime Minister, as he expected to do then, then um, I need people like you in to help get it democratically constituted. Well that's all history I did make the decision to come here because it actually suited me after a quarter of a century as an MP for various things that were going on in my life and to lower the pace of activity to make space for other things Uh, and I must say I'm, I'm enjoying it not because of the antiquated undemocratic institution that it is but because it is part of the legislature. Every law that goes through the House of Commons has to come through here and so for example when the sanctions and money laundering bill came through Parliament it started off in the Lords which I was able to use as a platform at the request of of brave whistleblowers in South Africa who supplied me with the ammunition to then expose a lot of the, the Zuma, Gupta Fraud and looting uh, and the way that it was going global and the way that they were using global corporates to, to do it.
0: And to use that platform it is one that, it, that the world's media pays attention to.
1: Yes, for example as a result of that particular speech that I made uh, uh, the longest speech I made during the bill as proceedings where I explained the atrocity the scandal is to. To light a word for it, the atrocious criminality of the Frida Estina dairy farm um, scam, which involved looting money from the poorest uh, rural farmers or, or workers, not even farmers yet. It was designed to help in the Free State. Then recycling that money internationally, money laundering it to bring it back into South Africa and then to spend on a grotesque wedding in Sun City whilst those poverty-stricken people were left destitute. And that did move a lot of people, both here and created a lot of international attention as a result of which the New York Times came to see me, uh, the Economist came to see me, uh, and then went and did big exposés, which I think helped create a climate in which even those... ANC delegates to that conference in December who were wavering as to whether they stuck with Zuma or whether they went with Cyril, it may have swung a few votes. And that's all that was needed? Well, it was a frighteningly small majority. Mm. A point I often make about Cyril Ramaphosa's current um, uh, presidency is that he won with 179 votes out of 5,000. Uh, and had a perilously narrow majority in all the structures of the party, and he 's still
0: constrained by all of that is, is it is is that affecting his approach because apart from the zondo commission and apart from uh, some of the other progress that has been made, he does seem to be pretty tentative the ramaphoria that erupted in the initial election seems to have dissipated. Well, I'm a hardened
1: politician. I've been 50 years in anti-apartheid politics to parliamentary politics here, including some of the highest levels of the cabinet in the British government. And, uh, you know, I said at the time he was elected, do not expect quick change. Now, to his great credit, he'd already started clearing out the state-owned enterprises, appointed a new ESCOM board in January, whilst he was still deputy president, though president of the ANC. So he'd started that job very quickly. But I said, you know, there is a change in any system, and I've experienced it as an insider in the British government, uh, where we have a much longer tradition of parliamentary democracy and South Africa is a young democracy, we have a much more established uh, and grounded system of administration and civil service and government that is not as easy, you know, much more difficult to uh, manipulate uh, in in a corrupt way, in the way that President Zuma and his cronies were able to do. Um, and so, you know, don't... And yet it was very difficult to get change, very difficult as a minister. people. M- don't understand how difficult it is for governments to change things. Even when your motives are absolutely, uh, totally, totally correct, as I believe Cyril Ramaphosa's are, even when you've got a majority, even when you've got everything going for you, as the early years of the Blair government did with a massive majority and so on, it is still difficult to shift the mm-hmm. system. So I, I think expecting quick change under Cyril was always going to be uh, disappointed. You stick with him. You keep pressuring him. Civil society helped bring about that change. The independent media, including the business newsers and the Daily Mavericks and so on, helped create that change. I think a strong civil society should keep the pressure on Cyril, but not expecting to do the impossible.
0: As you might expect, our conversation soon moved across to Peter Haynes' superb book on his friend, the South African leadership icon Nelson Mandela. I loved this punchy, well-written 196 pages on the man who changed a nation's destiny. But with a veritable library of books on Madiba already available, why did Hain believe another one was needed?
1: I felt, and this was what I was asked to write, I felt there was a need for a concise, essential story but a readable one that you could just pick up and read on a long train journey or a plane journey or lying on the beach or over a weekend. And there are wonderful books on Madiba. Anthony Sampson's biography is a a masterpiece, but it's 800 pages. And Madiba's own Long Walk to Freedom is a brilliant book, but it's 800 pages. I wanted to write something where... Whether you're a student or a pensioner, whether you're young or you're old, whether you are well-informed or you're half-informed but interested, you can just pick it up uh, uh, and read it. And it was difficult to write, but I've always, and and I drew on a um, a lot of work, particularly the Anthony Sampson book, and of course Long Walk to Freedom itself. But I, I have a, a mantra myself, and I teach about this, one of the subjects I teach at Fitz Business School, where I'm visiting a professor is that if you've, got to, if you've got something to say, you've got to be able to say it in a form that catches people's attention, that if it's in writing, is readable rather than too dense, too packed with information and facts that people start to lose the flow on. Uh, And so that's the way I approached it, to try and get people to turn the page. And I found it a fascinating enterprise because I learned a lot in writing it that I didn't know a lot of things I didn't know. And I came to understand Uh, Nelson Mandela in a much deeper way than I I thought I understood him pretty well and I was privileged to have been a friend um, in his latter years uh, as my parents had been in the late 50s and early 60s in Pretoria but uh, I found out a lot about him that I didn't understand before and I wanted to transmit it to just the, the average reader rather than the highly informed
0: intellectual or you know, incredibly well-informed journalist. You didn't get distracted. I think that was the, uh, the the thing that impressed me most. And it's so easy to get distracted in his life. Take Brom Fisher as an example. Uh, the the great friend of his, the advocate, the the man who made sure that Madiba didn't die or wasn't wasn't executed. You mention him, but you don't get distracted and go off into Brom Fisher's whole uh, uh, life story. It remains very focused, and I think that, to me as a reader, uh, when I read a book on Mandela, I want to find out more about Mandela, and you achieve that.
1: Well, that's what I hoped. I do. I hope also explain to the lay reader, especially the British reader or the American reader, because it's been published there too, or a new editions, uh, an editions been specially printed in India, who admire the, the icon but want to know the story. And I didn't want to really be distracted, although Bram Fisher's role, of course, was crucial, not least in the Rivonia trial, when he pleaded with Madiba to not make the the famous statement from the dock where he said he'd be prepared to die for his belief in a non-racist society, um, because he was worried that it would lead to his execution. And it is an interesting question as to why it didn't, and why the state... Uh, or the judge on his own, or a combination of the two, we never know the truth about that, at least I don't, um, decided that life life imprisonment was a better sentence Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. A very prudent decision, I think, at the time, but one in the end that saved South Africa. So I tried to kind of just
0: zero in on the subtitle of the book, The Essential Story, His Essential Life. When one studies another human being in this way, as you do when you write a book, you would also leave it with a a number of lessons. What did you come away with? Well, first of all, I say in the
1: preface that I was not an impartial observer. I'm not a... I am not I do not approach it as a a journalist would. I I was a a participant in the anti-apartheid struggle and therefore a partisan in in my uh, my admiration for Nelson Mandela. Uh, But um, I think it's important not to not to hero-worship him I mean he was the first to say, "I, uh, you know, I'm no saint and he wasn't uh... his personal life certainly before he went into into prison and, uh, and, and before he got married to Winnie you know, was pretty complicated he was very much a man about town and he was very much uh, a, a, a popular amongst women and so on um, That's not to criticize him, it's just to make a statement about him, that he was not a saint. The thing I learned most about him was his his sense of his fortitude um, and his resilience and the way that he learned, he became a leader. He went into prison as a leader, but he came out as a leader of his country. He went into prison as a leader of the freedom struggle as a burly freedom fighter. He came out as a wise leader trying to build a one-nation South Africa. And that, I think, was a very important uh, lesson for leadership. The other thing that I came to understand, and it is associated, is leadership, and I, again, teach about this at Mits Business School, I distinguish between leadership and followership. And I really came to understand this. I'd sort of... Been kind of intuitive, intuitively finding my way in there through my own experience. Madiba was a leader, not a follower of his uh, followers. Leadership is often weak, leadership often does exactly what your followers want you to do because it keeps them happy, they're your constituency, and you need them because they're your base, and you wouldn't be there were they not. To have confidence in you and to be able to sustain that confidence is important, as, uh, as I know, having been a member of Parliament. But he was also willing to do what he thought was the right thing, and invariably proved the right thing, uh, even when he was advised not to do it. And leadership is sometimes doing what your closest confidants and advisers, and in his case, party members. Uh, advise you not to do because actually it was the right thing to do for the country. And the classic example was the 1995 World Cup final, mm. where his closest associates said, If you don that Springbok jersey and wear that Springbok cap, you will be wearing the symbol of apartheid on the rugby field, as it had been, mm. as it had been for generations. But he knew it was the way. At a, a year into his presidency, with his own legitimacy still very fragile with the white community, it was able to, it was able to seal the deal with the white community, which he needed to do mm.
0: to govern for the whole of the country. It's often suggested that Cyril Ramaphosa was Mandela's favourite, that he has the same approach towards a non-racial South Africa nation building. But we haven't seen any of that, and certainly the white community in South Africa right now is feeling very nervous uh, there's, there's a lot of immigration there's a lot of money that's leaving the country from what you know of this man and from what you know of his favourite because that's what Ramaphosa was how would you advise those people who are very fearful right now
1: well first of all I do think and, I, and it was no accident that he made that clear in his opening speeches that Cyril Ramaphosa is in the Mandela tradition that he is trying to re-establish the Mandela legacy, um, but to deepen it with economic transformation and addressing the land reform issue and so on, which I think is important to do. But I can well understand why the white community is um, feeling uh, feeling insecure at the moment, but that's been happening for quite a while. I mean, that, that has been happening for quite a while, uh, including since the transformation and i think the reasons for that are complicated you know <laughs> we're both from the white community in south africa and the white community had the most privileged existence in the world and it's not easy to come to terms with the loss of that privilege even though objectively you believe that what happened with the abolition of apartheid was the right thing for the country and for you, you know, the opportunities for your kids and the opportunities for you maybe if you're younger are not what they were. And nor can they be. But I think the white community's duty, if it can, and I make no I'm not giving any lectures to any individuals, what happened to me was an historical thing. I didn't find myself in Britain through choice. I found myself in Britain because we were forced into exile as a family by the apartheid government, um, so I'm not, I'm not judgmental on anybody for choosing to live in London rather than South Africa, but I do think, if you think the future of South Africa is um, dependent primarily on high quality skills, and economically that must be the case in the modern world of globalisation then the flight of skills acquired through the social capital invested in you in South Africa, white or black, is a big problem for the country. Mm. Uh, So I'm not making judgments on individual family circumstances. I mean, I've talked to uh, very prominent uh, white women here in the South African diaspora who had a horrific carjacking in Johannesburg and very bravely resisted it uh, and just said, Can't, I've got to move. Otherwise, you know, maybe all of my nine lives would be used up, and maybe I've used them up already. Um, So I understand that. You know, a shocking thing like that uh, is 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 perfectly understandable. But I think it's, you know, I still have confidence in the future of South Africa because I think a lot of the objective conditions are the right ones. though the legacy of apartheid and the legacy of Zuma have created. incredibly difficult conditions to overcome. It would have been difficult enough facing the competition threat from India and China, which is where I think people really should be focused in South Africa rather than only on the internal debate. I think South African debate is far too parochial. Mm. I may be, I see it in a different way from you know, somebody who's born and brought up in the, the struggle in South Africa and has lived there all their lives, but I do because I'm, you know, have a global perspective because of my circumstances, um, and, you know, if you if you think that the real, the real that South Africa's future is about um, being a competitive economy with social justice, of course, because the two have to coexist. Uh, the, the, a truly competitive economy in a country like South Africa. Uh, cannot be possible without social justice and the problem of neoliberalism and why we've got such political instability across the world and tumult across the world is because neoliberalism has created circumstances in which 9 out of 10 people in the developed economies have lost out or remain stagnant now for decades. Mm And uh, the promise to future generations is actually a fading promise, and that's why there's so much discontent. It explains Brexit, it explains Trump, it explains Macron, actually explains Jeremy Corbyn. They're all different. You, you can't put Trump and Corbyn in the same box, ideologically or politically, that would be absurd. But they're all a product of massive discontent with a neoliberal economy that rules the world. And you have to change that. But South Africa has to do so in a way that keeps people's skills. And so I would say to uh, the white community, yeah, you're worried about land reform, you're worried about your own house. I was talking to an Indian family, well-established in Joburg, successful in business and so on, who are worried about their, whether they're going to have their house taken over. There's that that concern right through the country. And I said to everybody on land reform, look, it's a matter for South Africans to decide and the government to decide and to elected uh, democratic um, politicians to decide what you do about land reform. But be very careful how you pursue this. If you, um, if you destabilize foreign investment, if there's a loss of confidence in foreign investment, actually, there's a massive loss of confidence in foreign investment because of the Zuma legacy. It picked up with Cyril, and now I think it's on hold because there's uncertainty over land reform, amongst other things, amongst many other things. Um, You have to do it in a way that retains domestic confidence in the white community, in the property-owning Indian community, in the property-owning coloured community, and in the property-owning black community as well, all those different communities. So I think the white community shouldn't see itself as somehow in isolation or beleaguered, because I don't think it's any more beleaguered than if it chooses to interpret its its position and predicament in that way than the Indian community is. Minorities. The the coloured community Mm. is. And actually the black middle class is actually in the same position. Mm. It's another minority.
0: Yeah, yeah. Peter, uh, how how have the, the book sales been going?
1: They've been pretty well. They haven't been spectacular as far as I know. Um, the the Americans were pleased with it. The British publishers were pleased. The South African, Jonathan Ball in South Africa, was pleased with it. I haven't seen the latest figures, but the, the, it was being reordered in bookshops, which is always a nice thing.
0: And, and what's your hope? That What do you hope to achieve by having written this book because nobody gets rich out of writing books Mm.
1: nobody doesn't certainly not me I mean I've written 21 books I've never made my wife describes me as working for about a a quarter of the the minimum wage on all the (laughs) the hourly rates it's not about that and I give a lot of them away as well Um, I hope that it will be read by a lot of young people in South Africa because I I worry about the fact that the born particularly haven't got a sense of their own history and actually, in particular, if I'm going to distinguish between the racial groups, a lot of black young South Africans, uh, who it's really important, I think, they they know where they're coming from, and this book is an easy way into that. You don't have to read a textbook on apartheid. Mm. You can just read the story, identify with Mandela, see what he went through, why, you know, what apartheid was really like. Um, Uh, and I think it conveys that as well at least that's what I intended to do Mm.
0: What's next? We've uh, seen your battle against the Suptas Uh, you've now finished the book on Mandela you've been involved heavily in the centenary celebrations of Nelson Mandela you're still fit, healthy, in the House of Lords how are you going to uh, continue with your activism from here?
1: Well I'm enjoying doing um, the role as Witzsche university vis- business school visiting professor, which takes me out every three or four months. I mean, I find it enormously rewarding uh, talking about leadership, talking about negotiation, conflict, dispute resolution, talking about communications, media from the point of view, not your point of view as a journalist, but my point of view as being on the other side of the microphone, or the television cam- camera, or the, the print media, uh, and how to deal with that. Um, and then about speaking in public, most people don't know how to speak in public. <laughs> they, they kind of rattle on for too long and bore the pants off people and don't understand how to communicate what they want to say in, in a brief attention span. And similarly with writing. So, you know, writing in a way that is conveying a message. Um, most writing is too long, of all descriptions. And uh, so I'm enjoying that because I feel that's a small way of having had a lifetime's experience from the grassroots of politics and struggle to the highest levels of government and now in in the Lords. If I can convey some of that and pass it on as some of the insights, then I think I can still make a difference. So I mean, making a difference is, and that's what Nelson Mandela also taught me, he has this wonderful quote that I start the book with and I end it with, uh, just as a reminder that, you know, the purpose of life is not just to be there, it's to make a difference.
0: And make a difference Peter Haynes certainly has. First, by being the driving force behind the boycott of whites-only sports teams during the apartheid era, and more recently, by focusing global attention on Zupta corruption. His book on Nelson Mandela might not have quite that kind of seismic impact, but it is indeed another meaningful contribution. This has been The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio.